Good morning. <laughs> Happy August. Well, I'm going to talk this morning about connections. You have your handout. Um, the only reason there's not more stuff on there is I couldn't fit it. Um, I always over-prepare because I have a whole lot to say. And, um, and you know, when you've been around as long as I have, and um, I was ordained in 1978. And so before I got ordained, of course, I was passionate about seeking the Lord and reading scriptures and knowing what God's up to. So, I mean, I've been on that pursuit for almost 50 years. And um, that's pretty amazing. Um, I don't know how I got here, but here I am. And, uh, you know, I look in the mirror sometime, I go, who's the old guy? And, uh, you know, or when you go to your high school 50-year reunion, that's when you look around the room and go, oh, no, what happened to everybody? My gosh, I don't recognize, who are you? It's like, you know, so it's kind of hilarious, honestly, isn't it? Um, as we get older, I mean, I think I've seen memes lately, and, you know, the old man's looking in the mirror, and he's seeing an 18-year-old. And uh, there's kind of truth in that. You know, you're, you're kind of who you are your whole life. And then, except God transforms us. Uh, he really does transform our hearts and our thoughts and the way we live. We learn the ways of the Lord and we follow the ways of the Lord. So this morning, um, you know, Mike said, talk about K-Psalm a little bit. Um, immediately my brain went to, okay, I'm going to kind of teach on what the school ministry is about differently. And um, just to reiterate the school, um, we meet for 10 months, and we start the first uh, Thursday after Labor Day, and we go till the end of June. And it's every Thursday and every Sunday. And uh, we do invite in guest speakers that I uh, know carry something of the presence and the kingdom of God that can make a deposit in your life. Um, they're better than I am, and I love that. Um, Ed Pioric is one of them. Um, Ken Fish, kind of Dave Taylor, Mark DuPont, and even Dave Taylor or, or David Wagner. Um, when somebody that has international influence uh, begins to speak into your life in a group of 20 or less people, there's a takeaway. And um, it's great to be in a room this size with somebody that's uh, an amazing um, messenger of the things of the kingdom of God, uh, but to have it up close and personal is even better. And that's my intention. It's always been my intention. So I, I call in people that are better than me. I, I love doing that. I just sit in the back and it's your turn. So um, that's the school. If you really want to know more about it, God's tugging your heart. I'm going to have a meeting after church across or under the tent over in the family room. I'll be over there on 1230. I'll answer your questions, kind of review the program again. And uh, meet and greet you. I know some are coming over there already. And because uh, we're going to start in a couple weeks. And it's pretty typical. That's how it works. This is, we get going. So let me, um, let me start. Uh, I have an introduction here on your page. Um, I have a bunch of other pages and notes up here for me. Um, and this message actually about connections um, is really just another way of saying how we need God uh, we need one another, and we really need something to do in life. I mean, that's pretty simply it. I could sit down right now and say, that's the story, folks. Um, this match, the songs even this morning, Show Me Your Face, and uh, It Is Well With My Soul. Those, those songs fit rather well into what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to start out with this. So the first scripture really is going to be our key text this morning. It's Romans uh, chapter 12. Uh, verses 1 through 8, just for some more context. So um, what it says is that, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, or holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And just as each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body 
and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith or hers. If it is in serving, let him serve. If it is in teaching, let him teach. And if it is encouraging, let him encourage. And if it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. It is his leadership. Let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So within the context of that, we have looking to God, looking to yourself, and being a part of something else. That's pretty much the flow. The Kingdom School of Ministry is about intimacy, about community, and about a sense of outreach. It could be outreach mission and what's your personal life? What are you called to do? And we'll get to that later. But that's kind of the school. That's, that's what we talk about every year. Uh, that's our intention is that the first trimester you connect with God, that you have a deeper understanding of how to connect with God one-on-one -on -one, so that you yourself can be encouraged in your own soul um, for what he is what he's asked you to do, uh, what you're requiring of him, what you're needing him to do for you, all that stuff, just a personal relationship connection. Having your needs met by Jesus is the name of what we're about, right? We're not a religion, we're a relationship. Everything about this outline today is about relationship. It's not about task, it's about relationship. We relate to the Father, we relate to one another, and we relate to some sort of a thing that God's asked us to do. And the better we are relating to what we're asked to do, the better we are at it. If it's just a thing, it's just a thing. If it's a calling, it's a big deal. So um, I wrote down here also out of Genesis chapter 1 through 26, I said creation mandate. Uh, this quite simply in verse 27 would say, uh, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him and made, feel, made male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase the number and fill the earth and subdue it. So God, man, man united, man's purpose, same thing. You call it the creation mandate because that's really what it is. We're called to subdue the earth. And if you haven't read that lately, it's interesting because it talks about them uh, subduing the earth, not him. <laughs> Just a little note there for us husbands and wives. Um, it's not about me, it's about us. And uh, it's, we get this thing done together. And we get it done together as the body of Christ, too. It's not just guys, it's everyone. Everyone matters. Everybody gets to play. That's what we say, right? Um, I've got the definition of, of rule down here, but for, I think it's pretty obvious. And then the third text here that I have as an introduction is that it's the prayer of John 17. And um, I think, not to mess with you, uh, Sammy or Josh back there, thank you very much for your technology and support. It makes this look good. Um, if I go to verse uh, 13 out of chapter 17, it says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am in the world, so that they may be, that they may, have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world anymore than I am of the world. My prayer is that, and prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you, that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. The interesting flow in this is it isn't like, get saved, meet Jesus, be in church. Get saved, meet Jesus, go in the world. Take Jesus into the world, the world, the cosmos. That's what the word means. That's what we're called to do. We're called to go out, called to make a difference in the world. Um, most of us, you know, as we get saved, we want to have a, a value and a purpose in church. Uh, that's kind of how I was wired, you know. Good, I want to do this. That's what I'm called to do. And I do believe this is my sphere of ministry. I do believe that teaching and, and such is exactly what God's called me to do, so that's what I do. I, I, I feel like I'm obeying God 
It's my, it's what I'm wired to do. Um, um, I always ask people, ask me, well, I don't know what I'm called to do. And I always say to them, what are you reading? What are you watching? That's what you're interested in. That's what you should be doing. If your heart cries for something, be involved. It's God. God created you with a mind and a heart and a soul and a will. If we're wired a certain way, yield to what, how, the God, how God made you. So, um, so, yeah, Jesus said, you're my church, and I'm sending you in the world. Haven't heard that one lately, have we? <laughs> it's like, um, uh, but we do need one another. So in part one here, I call it connecting to God. And I got the Godhead, the Trinity, um, and so on. And the reason I talk about a Trinitarian connection to God is that that's really how it works. And um, I wrote down here three little scriptures for you, John uh, 2.19, Acts 4.10, and Romans 8.11. I don't really need to put them up there. You don't need to, but I'm just going to reference them. Is that John 2.19, it says that Jesus proclaims, tear this temple down in three days, I will raise it up. He's going to raise himself up from the dead. Acts chapter 4 says, and God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now it's God who raised Jesus from the dead. And we get to um, Romans chapter 8 verse 11 and it says, if the spirit of him who raised him from the dead dwells in your mortal bodies. So the Holy Spirit is the one that raised him from the dead. Either we have triple personalities here or it's all one. And it's always been my understanding from the late Dr. Walter Martin in his book uh, is that he talked about the Trinity and he had an apologetic for it biblically. And this is part of what that is. It's like, where does the scriptures demonstrate that there's a Trinity? Well, this is the demonstration of the Trinity and the resurrection. And there's other lines about you know worship and so on. And I always kind of like to mess with people what I think is very true is I think it's completely acceptable to worship the Spirit. Not just worship Jesus, not just worship the Father, but to worship the Spirit, because the three are one. And as we find ourselves engulfed in that reality of a Trinitarian God who works his wonder within our souls and around our universe, we're connecting with a greater dimensionality of God. Um, There's this quote, there's a a book by Baxter Kruger uh, called The Great Dance. It's It's a book about the Trinity. It's kind of a great read, but kind of unquotable. That's what I say about some books. And he says in it, the fundamental character of Christian faith is that of discovery. Faith, as Luther said somewhere, is like the eye. Quote, it does not create what it sees, it sees what is there. So that's what faith does. We don't create what we see, we see what's there already. I mean, even if you have a word of knowledge about a healing you're seeing something you didn't see before. You're like, oh, that's it. When you learn that language of heaven and you're gifted in that way, you see what's there because faith has shown you what's there. And I I love that about it. I wrote this. I said, it's not a contradictory but confirmatory and revelatory reality. It's that the Trinity is a revelation. And uh, one thing I believe is that there's, you know, information unto revelation that leads us to transformation. And when you're transformed, you become the reformation. You become reformational. You're now bringing something of a reformation to the planet by now the transformation that occurred to you because of revelation because somebody told you something. When somebody says, you must be born again, you're like, what does that mean? I mean, you're honestly curious because God's drawing you. And you get born again. And you're like, wow, wow, that changes everything. It changes everything. It's a revelation that transforms who you are. That's our journey in God, is a revelation that, that uh, we encounter the big transformation. It's beautiful. So um, I wrote down other scriptures here. And so when I think of the Trinity, um, I think in these terms, you don't have to put these scriptures up either. I just noted them for you. We kind of move on because I've always got too much to say. Um, So when I look at God the Father, I look at the fact that he is love and he is sovereign. When I look at Jesus, he says that he is truth and grace. 
And when I look at the Spirit, I know that the Spirit is power and comfort. These are just kind of biblical truths that we, let's call them connecting points with the Trinitarian God. You've all, I know, felt the comfort of God in your life. That's the Spirit. I'll know that you've all received the grace of God, and that's Jesus. And I'll know that you've received the love of the Father. Because that's the Father, that's the Son, that's the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian reality of encounter that we have with God. We learn these things by kind of looking at Scripture, and then we can read all kinds of different books that confirm what we know about Scripture. Um, and that's really fun, too. So the next thing, um, you can put this Scripture, which is Exodus chapter 33. So we actually sang this this morning. Show me your face, Lord. Show me your face. Exodus 33, 7. I'm going to read this one, take some time, just so we have more context for when we even sang that song this morning, Lord, show me your face. So it says, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Now that's kind of cool right there, honestly, isn't it? Yeah, we have a tent in the parking lot. Anytime you want to meet God, just go there. It's like, okay, cool, I'm going. <laughs> like, you know. Um, of course, now we are the tent, and he dwells in us. Plus, this would be a secondary dwelling place of God, is a sanctuary. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whatever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as man speaks to his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but a young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do everything you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Well, then show me your glory. Ah, the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, you will put... I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but you, my face must not be seen. Earlier in the text it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. But the bottom of the text it's like, you can't see my face. You ever read that before? You ever go, or you just keep on reading? <laughs> it's like, yeah, whatever, click, let's go. Let's get the story done. Got 10 chapters to read today. Um, you know, it's, you sit there and you go, now wait a minute, what's this about? So being the character I am, I, um, I mean, I even have this Bible on my phone, you know, so I look up the Hebrew word and I know, I know Hebrew because I can look at my phone, not because I know anything. And um, that's just how I was kind of trained. It's just look up words, find out what they mean. So the word for face is panim. But the interesting thing is that the word for presence is panim too. It's the same word. So whether you're looking at face or presence, it's panim. 
show me your panim, O Lord. And he said, my panim you can't see, but my panim you'll get. What's he saying? Well, it's kind of in your notes here. Uh, the face and presence is it's figurative and it's literal. And I looked that up and I thought, well, that explains everything. <laughs> I mean, to me it did. So maybe I have to explain. Um, is that, you know, show me your face means, or let's say it this way. You know that you're seeing the face of God because you're aware of his presence. So when you're in worship and we're singing, show me your face, and you're well aware of his presence, I'm telling you, you're seeing God face to face. You know what glory means in the Hebrew is kabod. And that's a weight. And sometimes you feel this weight on you. Sometimes you sense something in the room that's just different. You are sensing the presence of God. Our senses do know God. Why do I believe that senses tell us where God is? Well, there's, one, there's a couple of scriptures. One said, taste and see the Lord is good. Well, I don't know if I've ever tasted God, you know, literally. But functionally, in a sensation sense, I have tasted that the Lord is good. And God is also known as a sweet-smelling fragrance. Uh, we were talking to a friend of ours the other day, and they were saying that uh, in Bob Jones, being around that guy who was incredibly prophetic and seer, he, he said, smell the roses? She's like, no. Smelled again. All of a sudden, the room filled with the presence of the smell of roses. He goes, smell that now? This guy had this unique ability to just call things from heaven, which heaven is this far away, by the way. As my buddy N.T. Wright said, not a buddy, somebody I read. It's a dimension, not a distance. The kingdom of God is a dimension. That's why the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's why heaven is at hand. That's why tasting heaven, sensing his presence, is seeing his face. And that's how we connect. So when you go to your secret place, um, which could be in a chair, a table, closet, that's where you go encounter God, and that's where I would say you plug in and get refueled. Somehow you've all done that. Somehow you know how you connect. I always say if you want to grow in your understanding, that you need to understand how you grow. So if you want to grow in your understanding, understand how you grow. Do you grow just around people all the time? Do you grow by yourself? Do you grow taking walks? What do you, how do you grow? How do you grow in God? Do you read books? Do you read the scriptures? Do you listen to YouTube? Talk to friends? Ask them questions? You all, you all have a hunger to grow in God. And you're finding a way to do that. So how do you do that? So for me, as I sit in my little chair, um, Brenda's in the chair across the living room, and I'm just having kind of the time of my life, and, um, in a sense sometimes. Sometimes I'm just trying to wake up and drink coffee. Um, and that's, that's reality too. Um, so let me share with you a couple of connections I've made. So this actually happened to me on 428, so April 28th, 2022. And I was just sitting in the chair, and I, I went to Luke 418, and I read this text. It said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, I want to give you a little footnote here if you want something to read. There's a book by Walter Brueggemann. And the name of this book is called Words That Linger and Texts That Explode. Words That Linger and Texts That Explode. Now, every once in a while when you're reading the scripture or what we might say any sacred text, is all of a sudden that word begins to resonate and speak to you. So I went, oh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm like, okay, come Holy Spirit. Man, did that work. It was good. <laughs> and I, so I wrote down, I personally experienced it, focusing on his presence with my eyes closed. I envisioned a pouring out of the Spirit upon me, and this was a felt experience. I'm just sitting there going, I mean, from the outside looking in, you don't have a clue what's happening. But from the inside, I am totally aware the presence of God is upon me. I kind of begin to tremble, and I'm just loving being in God's presence. 
Because at that time, that text kind of exploded in me. And it touched my life. And then, you know, that was my devotion for the day. It was like one line. Another time, uh, this was a couple of months. I don't think I wrote down the date. Uh, is that I opened up to Acts chapter 1. I thought, well, I need to start reading the book of Acts. So book of Acts 1.1 says, uh, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And I'm like, began to do and teach? No, this is, this is the gospel. This is what he did. If I'm Luke, I'm like, this is what Jesus did when he was on earth. He's like, no. He said, this is what Jesus began to do and teach. You know why? Because he's alive. And he's still doing things and teaching things. Unbelievable, huh? We have a living God. We don't have a God. I mean, you know, other religions have no God who loved them enough to die for their sins. And certainly no God that comes in a presence that alters their reality. They can alter their reality by determination, but our, our realities are altered by his presence. And it changes us. It makes us new. It changes who we are. So I wrote down here, so what does your encounter look and feel like? I'm sure you can all fill in the blank. If you can't spend some time with Jesus, that's what you need to do. Spend some time with the Father. Ask the Holy Spirit to come. And uh, if you don't do that much, just if you've ever felt his presence in here, think about that when you go home. Call that back into memory. Make it a reality. Let Jesus touch you as often as you need it. Part two is this, is connecting with yourself. I say, think of yourself, uh, ponder you kind of yourself. It's like, well, that sounds kind of self-centered. Well, this is what it says in Romans 3, 12, 3. It says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. It didn't say don't think about yourself. Just don't have an attitude that you're the only thing that matters. <laughs> right? I mean, I heard it said once, don't take yourself so seriously. Take God more seriously. Well, we certainly, you know, I mean, in all the reading and think, I, you know, you take yourself pretty seriously sometimes, don't we? We walk in the house and there's somebody there and it's like, well, I'm pretty, I've got my stuff together today. And then all of a sudden something happens and you lose everything. You know, because you last about that long with that attitude. Um, and then you read the Bible, you know, it says, pride comes before the fall. You're like, rats, I don't like that scripture. <laughs> I want to feel really good about myself all the time. Um, I, th I think we do that in humility better than we do it in arrogance. So um, then I've got other scriptures here just to kind of go over more of the issue. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7, um, we're still chiseling out tablets up there, it looks like. Um, that's okay. I'll read it. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not realize, do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Do you have faith? Only you can answer that question. And it's, faith is really for your faith in God. Your faith in what he's called you to do. Your faith in who you are. Uh, Galatians uh, 6, 4, and 5 says this. Each one of us should test his own actions. Uh, that he can take pride in himself. I'm like, there's that word, pride. Uh, without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. So because I didn't like that translation, I found another one. Um, that's how I work. Um, so in the New Living Translation, which says it a little differently, it says this. Pay careful attention to your own work, and then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself with anyone else, for we each are responsible for our own conduct. Now that makes sense to me, right? It's not like I get all puffed up and proud because I'm examining myself. It's like, no, it says, hey, pay careful attention to the things you're doing so that when you do pay careful attention and you do a job of excellence, you can go, ah, I did well. We want to be satisfied with the things that we're doing in life, right? I mean, you know, we only didn't mow the lawn right or rake up the leaves right when mom and dad said, go rake up the leaves. I'm like, that's good enough. 
right? You know, that's how we all learned. And then I was like, go out and do it again. It's like, I don't want to pull weeds today. That was me. I hated pulling weeds. Um, and for some reason, our yard had a bunch of weeds. Um, they were just, you know, the enemy trying to get at me. Anyway, so they still are. Weeds, weeds are the enemy. Um, it is biblical. Um, I go on to say this, and uh, of course I could probably talk about this for a long time, but I just wanted to say this, is that you are the sum of your past, present, and future. This is your identity. So often I hear people say, well, I'm a new creation in Christ, and nothing happened. Everything that happened before me doesn't matter at all. I'm like, eh, no, no. You are your parents' gene pool. <laughs> Sorry, you're going to be like mom and dad somehow. Because that's where you came from. So no matter how dysfunctional or amazing they are, you're going to love those folks. you know. And that's part of our dilemma, is that some of us have dysfunctional parents, and we love them anyway. And uh, we attune to that dysfunction, and then we're attuned to something silly. Uh, we have to get retuned to Jesus. And, and that's a process. It's called transformation. Becoming the person God wants us to become, not necessarily the person we are born in the natural to be. We want to be supernaturally born again. But we have to rework some of that wiring in our heads. You know, it's like you can't yell at people if they don't agree with you. Oh, you can't? <laughs> no, you're not supposed to do that. Have a conversation, for goodness sake. For goodness sake. Um, so I wrote down here on your notes anyway, I think it's uh, Identity uh, 23 and Me, which is, you know, basically one of those things you go in there and spit in a tube and find out what your ancestry is all about. And, um, you know, the other part of that story, actually, I think I have it, I don't know where I'll tell it, tell it now, but Peter Scarzo wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. In his book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader, and this guy Peter Scarzo is kind of very well known. He's written a lot of books about being emotionally healthy, the emotionally healthy person, the emotionally healthy church. And, um, uh, but in this book, he has a thing, and he makes a comment in chapter 2, which is called Face Your Shadow. And he makes a comment, he says, your grandparents are in your bones. I'm like, that doesn't sound very good. Um, really? And so then they have a thing called a genogram. Here's a new one for you, right? A genogram. It is a visual mapping tool that creates a person's family tree, relationships, and history. So he's like, well, go do a genogram, find out two or three generations back what all their stuff was, and figure out how to deal with all that. I'm like, that's the evangelical model. You know, uh, the Pentecostal model is we call it generation curses. We just want to rebuke them and bind them and get rid of them. And um, and sometimes that really works, right? You know, you go to these go to these places like if you have Masonic things in your background and you do an hour and a half long prayer and you're going to be all set free. And people get amazingly set free in these situations. It's actually stunning to me um, how powerful some of these prayers are about our history and our previous generations. So just put that in your you know, wallet, so to speak. And if you run into those sorts of issues, get some help. And I'll say that again in a minute too. But So um, I go on to say this. There's two sides to all of us. There's a healthy side and there's an incomplete side. I just think that's face the truth. The next thing I say is some, sound, some have sound minds, wise hearts, and good intentions. And, and for that, it's kind of the moving on phase, right? So in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Or, you know, it also says sound mind in some translation. So God has given you this. Now some people hit that and they hit the, the floor running, right? They're equipped. They're feeling good. They're, going, they're ready to go. So not all of us, you know, have a sense of issues within us that, that sustain us from doing what it is we want to do in life in connecting with God or feeling a sense of self-worth, overcoming our shame, uh, removing the things that we easily besets us. Like it says in Hebrews 12, you know, we want to move on for that stuff that jams us up, right? That's our, that's our intention is to be whole and, and, and one. Um, I, I thought about this um, this morning as I was thinking about what I'm going to say, uh, I thought, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was raised in the 50s and 60s, and I'm literally like the first generation that grew up watching TV, right? 
Uh, I still watch TV. Please forgive me. Um, only the news. No, I'm kidding. I watch all kinds of stuff. But, um, yeah, the news is like... <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. Um, please. This world's in trouble. But, um, you know, watch it, you, know watch, you watch a TV drama, right? Whether it's cops, doctors, or lawyers. Right? That's pretty much right. That's the pattern. Meet the cast. Dr. So-and-so, lawyer so-and-so, whoever, right? Then we have a problem. Oh, my God, the world's going to end. You know? And I love the cop shows because all of a sudden, they show up, get the bad guy, show over. You're like, whew, that was good. Well, so you learn growing up that really problems last an hour. I'm done. Isn't this cool? Wow. I didn't know my wife's leaving me. Wait till the end of the show. It'll be okay. <laughs> Amazing. Life's awesome. You got real life and you're like, no, 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 no. It's, this is just, I'm supposed to hit a plateau and just glide. Right. You glide for about a day. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, life's, life's a hoot, huh? You know? Uh, it's like, dear Jesus, have mercy on me. You know, I... Oh, man, I need to rewire. You know, trouble's with us. Jesus said, be of good cheer because there's trouble in the world. You know, in me, have good cheer. You know, that's a learned thing that we learn how to do. It's a, it's a, it's a mystical reality that we go, I'm going to get through this thing no matter how bad it looks. You know, I'm going to find a way. There's another verse that is only in the King James I heard Jack Hayford say this in 1974. It's actually uh, Luke 21, 19. It says, In patience possess ye your soul. I never forgot that. I mean, I heard it once and I went, Wow. In patience possess ye your soul. Wow. So you want to possess yourself in a better reality. You must be patient with self. And then there's a sense of ownership because you're patient and what God's trying to do instead of you just running and jumping. Because we're all pretty good at that. You know, conflict resolution, no thanks. Conflict avoidance, I'm in. You know, um, we're not all Donald Trumps that just like to do that kind of thing, you know. Um, I always say, well, they could have been more like Trump and just like throwing it back in their face, but I'm too nice. <laughs> um, so um, I want to read this one text to you. And uh, it's in John chapter 5, uh, verses 5 through 9. And this becomes like an interesting uh, segue in this thing about kind of examining yourself. It starts out like this. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years with the pool of Shalom. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in the condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to be well? Like, dude. No, I'm just like just sitting around being disabled 38 years. I would have never gotten healed around Jesus. I'm too sarcastic. But um, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which he took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and the Lord forbids you to carry your mat. Well, jeez. Religion does bring us problems. It brings us all problems. But here's uh, a little view into this. So... Here's the question sometime is, if you're in a position in your life, have you cried out to God, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? So here's the interesting thing about this story with Jesus. Is he asked them, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be well? Well, then he says, okay, then get up. I don't want to get up. I don't feel like it. No, just get up. When the Pharisees kind of criticized him, they were saying that that man had been healed. Well, that word healed is a different word than the word made whole. 
That word healed is actually the word therapeo. Where do you think we get the word therapy? Healed. Jesus bent down and looked at the man in his eyes with compassion in his heart. Do you want to be healed? I see your pain. I know your struggle. I know you can't get in the pool. Do you want to be healed? Get up. Here, get up. That's Jesus, right? He cares. Jesus matters. He's the compassionate one. He is exactly what the Father wanted him to be. And he represents what the Father wants us to be. He wants us to be like Jesus. That's such a compassionate story. He granted him therapy. He helped him. He helped him come to a better place. He healed him. But it started with a question, do you want Jesus to extend his hand to you? It still gets back to that equation of how do I get God's help? Cutting him back to a different thing here is Proverbs 25 says, like a city whose walls are broken down as a man who lacks self-control. King, New King James says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down. We have a responsibility, in a sense, to make sure that we're kind of built up in the faith. You know, We don't want to be torn down. Uh, we don't want to be like a city without walls. We want to take care of our souls, make sure our souls are healthy. Well, what is our soul? I mean, Jesus said... Um, well, I'll go back to Romans chapter 12 briefly in Romans 12, 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. And this becomes your spiritual act. And then because of that, you get your mind renewed. So what's the order here? The order is get your body in there. <laughs> get your body in there. It's a spiritual reality. And then your mind changes. Your mind will go where your body goes, too. Yeah, I know how we think. That's how we are, too. So definitely your brain will guide you certain places. In this uh, formula, as it were, in Romans chapter 12, to get your bodies involved. Make it a spiritual act of worship. Get your body involved, and your mind will be transformed. Uh, J.B. Phillips' translation says it this way. I always quote this because I like it so much. J.B. Phillips was a translation. I think he did it in the 60s. A guy named J.B. Phillips. Um, everybody knows the message or the passion or any of that kind of stuff. So this was a different kind of translation that I grew up with being quoted to me in the 70s all the time. Uh, it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies. As a living sacrifice consecrated to him and acceptable to him. It's my favorite line. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may now be able to prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, it meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. Amen, huh? That's the motion we give it to God so he can put us in motion and get us to do something. It says in Matthew 2, 22, 37 through 40, it says we're supposed to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just want to make this brief comment, although we could probably spend 20 minutes on this. Uh, there is a video out there on YouTube called The Second Brain Found in Your Heart. It's by a guy named Dr. Pearsall. Uh, second Brain Found in Your Heart. This doctor basically interviewed people who had had transplant surgery in their hearts. After the transplants, their lives changed. One of them that I just listened to the other day was this rather <laughs> prejudicial uh, white man uh, that got the heart of a young black man. 
Had he known it was black, he probably wouldn't have taken it back then. That was the nature of his prejudice. But anyway, he got this heart, and uh, the old man had, you know, he was just an old gruff dude. He had no interest whatsoever in a lot of things. As soon as he got the new heart, all of a sudden he had a love for classical music. And began to listen to classical music over and over again. Well, you find out later, the young guy was trained to be a classical violinist. That heart changed the way he thought about his own life because of a heart transplant. So when it says, seek the Lord with all your mind and your heart and your soul, there's a dimension there that we really are just beginning to understand. You know? And I would say this too, is you ever heard trust your gut? Your head, your heart, and your gut? It's kind of a Trinitarian confirmation system of you doing the right thing in God. You know? I really like them, but this doesn't feel right in my gut. <laughs> might be a good reason might be a bad reason I don't know so um, when I say at the very end when you read the scriptures what are they saying to you uh, Hebrews uh, 4.12 says this for the word of God is living and active sharper than any double edged sword it penetrates even the dividing of the soul and spirit joints and marrow it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight Yep, it divides soul and spirit. There is a distinction between the two. Our soul would be our mind, our will, our intelligence. Our spirits are spirit. It's a little bit different. Um, so part three, now that it's, uh, you know, I got five minutes, if I was going to end at 12. If I was Mike, I have an hour. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, wherever you are. Love you, man. Appreciate you giving me a chance to talk. Um, might be the last time, but, you know. <laughs> I hear the gallows poles being built right now. Anyway, so <laughs> sorry, that's that's just a little bit of Bruce sneaking out there. Um, uh, so the last section is just connecting with um, others, and you know if we kind of go back to our text in Romans, and we don't really need to go there, but you know it talks about that we're all one body now, and then. Those of us in this, you know, charismatic reality we live in, it's like we certainly understand the body of Christ because I want the gift of prophecy and I want the gift of healing and I want to do prophecy all the time and healing all the time. And we got the gift body thing down really good. We know exactly what that's all about. And that's a great thing to be about because that's being like Jesus followed by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I want that in my life. I mean, that's why I'm here. I run after that stuff too. Um, obviously run after other stems, real things I read, but... Um, so I, I had this transition I really wanted to take, and I probably could have gotten here sooner, but I didn't, um, is that kind of where I got this word connecting was a guy named Johan Hari has written a book called Lost Connections. Johan Hari is a man who was grown up in Great Britain. He uh, was diagnosed as being manic depressive. He was given drugs. His mom and dad were depressed. They had drugs. Um, five, six, eight years later goes by. He's in his early 20s. He realizes drugs don't change the brain. There is, no thing, not, there is no such thing as serotonin in your brain, which you have too much of or not enough of that makes you depressed. And he had to come to Jesus' moment, so to speak. Even though he hasn't come to Jesus, he's a gay liberal um, you know, atheist. But nonetheless, uh, what he learned in his book is that he went after and said, wow, what's this really all about then? And it was the name of the book, Lost Connections. Uh, what are those lost connections? I, I think I wrote them down here. The lost connections are we don't connect with others. We don't have meaningful work. We don't have meaningful values. We have some trauma to overcome, and we need to restore our future hope. He said those are the keys to overcoming depression. Now, we've just come out of a pandemic where everybody got shut down, locked out, and some people at home might be still isolated. My heart goes out to you that have fear about being around people. Uh, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but the reality is, is that um, if you've lost connection with people, you've lost hope. And you've lost some of who you are. Because who I am has everything to do with you. My good friends in this room, you mean everything in the world to me. Without those connections, I'm lost. And, you know, speaking of Kesom, I get to make new connections every year. I absolutely love that. I get to spend 10 months with brand new people. I never met them before. It's like sometimes I look at them like, 
wow, who are these people? I should just sit down and learn from them. Everybody has something to say. I just get to stand in front and do a lot of it. But, um, and I kind of ended up on this journey and, um, about looking at the soul of man and looking at the heartache and depression. And part of the reason I even entered this journey was that it was, it's been on my, in the back of my head that even though I love, love, love prophetic ministry and prophetic things, uh, what I really need is a heart of a pastor. And what the prophetic movement needs is a pastoral heart. It's not enough to have a revelation. You ever have to have a revelation of love. You have to have a revelation of therapy as you deliver that prophetic word. He might change somebody's life. Finding your purpose is on your page. We all have a different function, so it tells us in Romans 12.4. Adam and Eve are an example of this. They were to go rule well. We all have different spheres. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, 12. 2 Corinthians 10, 12 says, We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. However, we will not boast beyond proper limits but we will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned us. Do you know the field God has assigned you? Not only is it connecting with people, it's connecting with a field of endeavor that you feel called to make a difference. Now, maybe, you're, maybe it's just a job. Maybe you're pouring coffee at Starbucks. It's a mission field. <laughs> it's also a place to train your soul, train your heart to be the person God's created you to be. And... Um, you know, that's, that becomes our sphere of ministry. Um, goes on to say here, I said that, you know, I reiterated again, Jesus, I have sent them out into the world. Part of our spheres of ministry are sometimes in the world. They're not even really about this building or this property. You know, maybe you're in the, the classroom here at the school we have, or maybe in the warehouse that we have. Those are two front battle lines uh, this church has in the community. And they're battle lines. The hearts and the minds of children and the hearts and the minds of the poor and broken, those are battlefields that we're trying to win the war and gain them and bring them into Christ, give them hope and a life and a future. So, <laughs> a, a quick story. So, we've all had jobs we don't like, right? You may even have a job you don't like. Um, there is this quote by a guy named Bob Buford, um, and Bob Buford is a man who wrote a book called Halftime. It's moving from success to significance. It's kind of a classic for a bunch of guys. I think this guy passed away quite a while ago. He probably wrote it in the 60s, 70s. And he would say the first half of our life is about making a living, and the second half of our life has the promise of being about how to make a life. And then he says this, the key to a successful second half is not a change of jobs. It is a change of heart, a change in the way you view the world and order of your life. Some of you, you're like, why do I have this job? So let me tell you a personal story. So 1981, I need a new job. I come back from Mammoth. I'm back in the big city. I need to get a job. And um, I had some friends in the church, and we could go do this thing called uh, selling labels. Uh, great. So there are actually about eight or ten of us and. Um, what does that mean? Well, we go door to door to retail businesses, ask them if they got a label with their logo on it. So I go to flower shops, lady stores, lawnmower shops, back then video stores. Hey, I stopped by to show you something I think you might like. Can I blah, 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 blah. Every once in a while I dream about, if I need some money in my heart, I have dreams about selling labels to make money. I wake, I wake up and I go, God, no. I don't want to, no, 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 no. We did that. We, nope, 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 not going back there. And uh, because it was straight commission, and I drove to L.A. to do it, so I put 40,000 miles here on my little car, wear, the, wear it out big time, and uh, then you walk around all day long with a sports coat on and a tie in 100-degree weather trying to sell somebody a label for their business. You're like, man, what am I doing? Well, try to have a good attitude. 
let's just say tried to have a good attitude. I needed to support my wife and two children, you know? That's what you do, right? You make a living. That's what guys do. You know, suck it up, you know? Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I was doing a job I didn't like. Well, uh, we'd go to these national sales meetings every year back outside Detroit, Michigan with, you know, four or 500 guys that are doing this all over the nation. Uh, poor suckers, <laughs> like me. Anyway, that's how I felt about it. Well, that year I got a Leo Albertson Memorial Award. You're like, what's a Leo Albertson Memorial Award? Well, Leo Albertson was a big deal in this company called Continental Marketing, and uh, they wanted to give an award to a guy that represented the best heart in the sales field. Wow. Who's getting that? Well, you are. Me? So the name of the award was called Building Cathedrals. And it says, so there were three men doing a task. The first man was laying bricks. The second man was building a wall. The third man was building a cathedral. Your job may be meaningful, but you can treat it like you're building a cathedral. You're doing something magnificent for God because he's done something magnificent for you. And it'll change your life. Because your attitude and your approach towards that little job will change your life. And eventually you'll get a new job. Anyway. <laughs> we hope. Hey, it might become a career. I don't know. You may actually just like it. Um, a good friend of mine, he has a, a psychology degree and he's in a businessman, has 170 employees now. Um, you never know where a psychology degree is going to take you. So I'll end with this, a uh, couple of quotes. Bob Buford um, had a couple more quotes I wanted to read to you because it becomes about the significance in your life. And that's what you're after. You're just not after money. If you were just after money, you wouldn't be here. You want your life to matter. You want your heart to matter. You want your soul to matter. You matter to God. That was Rick Warren's line. You matter to God. And you do. And you matter to you, more importantly. <laughs> right? You matter to you. you know? Whatever you're doing, that's critical to you. Um, anyway, it goes on to say, For the second half of life to be better than the first, you must make the choice to step outside of the safety of living and on autopilot. You must wrestle with who you are, why you believe what you profess to believe about your life, and what you do to provide meaning and structure to your daily activities and relationships. So how do you add that purpose to what it is you're called to do? It has to resonate with you. You know, your purpose is not my purpose. What makes me happy doesn't always make you happy. You know, just read the books I read. You won't be happy. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, Brenda's like, I'm not reading that book. So... Um, I have a great wife. But she gets tired of listening to all this stuff sometimes. My, my final quote from Bob Buford is this. My fruit grows on other people's trees. I love that. Is your life fruitful enough that you see your fruit on other trees? That's the ultimate reality of giving your life away. Laying your life down. Of making somebody else's life matter. Mother Teresa said this, let no one ever come away, let no one ever come to you without leaving better. Let nobody ever come to you without leaving better. Why don't you stand? <laughs> Worship team. Mm. Father, Father in heaven, Father who is just right next to me right now, and so is the Son, and so is the Spirit. We thank you for your word that gives us direction, but more importantly, Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for how you want to be among us and love us and help us become the people you really created us to be.
You don't hate who we are or where we're at in the process, Father. You've never hated us. You've always loved us. But yet now, at this phase of our growth, God, we give ourselves back to you one more time. And we say, have your way, O Lord. We present our bodies to you that you might transform our minds so that we might know that good and perfect purpose that you've really called us to. Paul said this, Father, you had him write this. He wrote, he prayed for the church that they they might lay hold of that which they were laid hold for. Father, I want to lay hold of that which you laid hold of me for. I pray that everybody here today can grasp what it is God's called them to become, that God has called himself to them. Holy Spirit, I ask you to touch every life here today and touch them and love them and hug them and embrace them right where they're at in the midst of their joys, in the midst of their struggles. Father, don't leave them alone. They don't want to do this alone. Nobody does. If you want prayer, there will be a prayer team up here. You can ask in anything you want. Our prayer teams are gifted people that care about you want to see God touch your life. Amen.